I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. So I'm here today with Eric Asimov, who is the wine critic, uh, and I, I think that is your title, although maybe... The chief wine critic. Chief wine critic, although yes. you might not call yourself a wine critic uh, per se. I know that that's terminology. I, I, I don't mind the term, um, but it has more meaning as a, as a Times Insider uh, uh, term. Um, you know, uh, Frank Pryor was my predecessor. That's right. 30 and, years he and, worked there. Uh, well, he worked there for a long time, and he was the first wine columnist in a daily newspaper. And, and so we're uh, talking about the, the New York Times. I don't think I got that out there. but Yes, yeah. the New York Times. And uh, he's really kind of uh, set the form in a lot of ways. He, he, he uh, created the mold as far as, being, uh, uh, as far as integrity and being a reporter first and, and uh, a guy who's responsible to the readers, not to the wine industry. But he never had the title of of wine critic the way we, you know, at the times we have a restaurant critic and a dance critic. Oh, and, sure, and different of departments, course, yeah. movies, music, and and so on, and and so I'm the first person to actually be called the the wine critic there, and it's not uh, it's not that I uh, have a particular distinction, but it indicates that the Times has come around to recognizing that wine is part of, of our culture. And so it, it deserves to be looked at uh, critically and analytically in the way we look at uh, uh, various arts and food and, and other things. Sure. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down with us. And I guess the first question we should get out of the way, uh, it seems everyone uh, wonders at one time or another, is are you related to the guy who coined the term uh, robotics, came up with the three laws, and wrote the 400 short stories, Isaac Asimov? The 400 short stories. I, I think it's actually, you're selling them short, maybe yeah. five or 600 complete books. Yeah, and I heard it was yeah, yeah. like 90,000 postcards. Um, something like that. Um, but yes, uh, I, Isaac was my uncle. I see. My father's older brother. And, you know... Uh, not to like belabor the point, but one of the things that I find interesting in that that parallel is that you know he really sort of had a patience in the way that he would uh, explain abstract scientific concepts, and he went back to some of the 
early science to come up with those answers. Like he would look, take a kind of historical view and go back and, and think about how the science that answers questions was invented. And you seem to also exhibit a lot of patience in your writing and a historical perspective. Is that a family trait? I, I don't know if it's genetic or not. Um, it, it would be uh, flattering uh, to me to think it is. Um, but, uh, you know, I like to think of in, in, in historical terms. I was a, historian, a history major and a would-be historian um, until I got kind of scared about the, the job market uh, back in the 80s. And, um, and I don't have a lot of patience with uh, jargon and um, uh, important-sounding lingo. And I think that's just um, good journalistic uh, skills. Sure. Being able to tell a story that holds readers' attention may mean eschewing uh, really bizarre terms that have limited usage to a small amount of people. Well, you know, it's it's funny. My first job, in, and I never really set out to to work in, in newspapers. I was always uh, passionate about food and wine, uh, but I couldn't, I, I never really imagined that I could get a job. That was, that was just something I was interested in, and it didn't pay. Yeah. And uh, I managed to, to get a, a, a journalism job, even though I had no training, and it was in, in hard news. And, you know, you, you quickly learned that um, the sort of, of, of language that, that fills textbooks and, and newscasts on TV was, uh, was, was not permitted by editors. You know, you try to uh, use something, you know, some kind of lingo like pocket veto. And oh, I, I, see. I had a boss who would like, look means. at me like I was insane. And, and that's what he would say. Do you know what a pocket veto is? Right. Uh, no. Okay, we'll fix it. <laughs> you know, right. come up, come up. Wait till you know what you're talking about. And actually, once you know what you're talking about, you're not then compelled to use uh, these sort of uh, uh, jargon that nobody else understands either. Yeah, I, I tried to pocket veto a, a corked wine the other day, and <laughs> it really went poorly at the table. I mean, no one understood what I was trying to do. But I heard the story that you started as a like a late night editor. Well, that was that was one of my first jobs at the. At the Times. Um, and I heard that you had this extra time because there wasn't a lot going on after hours. And you're like, hey, I want to write food and wine articles. Yeah, that I, I, I came in. Uh, I would come in. I was working as an editor in national news. I would come in at, at 730 at night. And my job was to, to stay there uh, until 3 in the morning. Everybody else would leave by around 1130. And if anything happened... I would squeeze it into the newspaper. So or, it would or, make the, the press for the yeah, morning. Yeah, and, and usually that meant if, if somebody died or there was a, a train crash somewhere or, or if, uh, you know, there was a, a, a congressional story that was going late into the night or whatever. But so you reported on a lot of deaths. Well, I, 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 I looked at the wire services and, and you know— it was not a lot of reporting. It was just a lot of of, of uh, squeezing things into the paper, taking things out. But but most of all, it was sitting around and doing nothing. Right. Um, and so, whereas a lot of people might have been fine with that, like me, you decided <laughs> to use that time for good use, and you started kind of penning these food columns. Well, I, I talked to um, 
our what was then called the living section that that uh that's where the food and wine uh was housed the food and wine stories and uh there was a, a scary editor there named Marco Slade, and I, I got up my courage. Slade. <laughs> this is Slade. We'd like to speak with you now. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I pitched a couple of stories because I thought, you know, for one thing, they would pay you, uh-huh. you know, as sure. a freelancer. And, right. and, and so you could kind of like double duty. Yeah. So uh, so I would make a little extra money, and I was already on staff, so that gave me a, a leg up over uh, all, all of the, the freelancers, freelancers who would be uh, sending in unsolicited uh, story pitches. We used to call that over the transom. Nobody knows what a transom is anymore, but uh, you know, you just it's throw got it through that, with that pocket, opening you know. over the door. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I remember, uh, you know, I wrote uh, stories on, on things that were interesting to me back then. Um, you know, uh, why all these ice creams back in the 80s started uh, mixing in Heath bars. What's a Heath bar? You know, yeah. it went from this obscure candy bar to like the most popular ice cream mix in, yeah, in the country. Yeah, I remember that. And, and, uh, and why is, you know, everybody tells you draft beer is supposed to be better, but it's always so bad in bars. Why is that? So uh, it was like, like uh, you know, anybody who's curious about the things that interest them, um, you get answers by, by essentially becoming a reporter. And, and in this case, I, could, I had the uh, opportunity to, to write stories. And the 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 legend, or it's probably true, is that you basically came up with the idea on your own, and then created the twenty five and under column for the Times. Well, I, w- I wouldn't say I came up with the idea on my own. Um, you know, the, the Times used to have uh, one restaurant critic, and and he would be. Um, uh, reviewing generally high-end restaurants, and then occasionally taking note of, of inexpensive restaurants in his in his sidebar column called Diner's Journal, and uh, and that was about it. And and so I and and many other people would say, why don't we have a, a, a column that focuses on on inexpensive restaurants and travels around the city to to obscure pockets and and looks at the various different kinds of foods that we never pay attention to. And there was always some reason why that was impossible. You know, oh, we can't uh, dilute the critical voice of the times. Right, 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 right. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but then... As a know, critical voice goes, that was a pretty good one. I thought that was, <laughs> was well-delivered. Yeah. It was like Olivier was here. Yeah, you, you need a stiff upper lip for that. <laughs> right, right. It's an editorial requirement. Um, well, this back in the '80s, when when newspapers uh, were thriving business, and you had a uh, uh, late '80s, you had a new uh, newspaper in New York, New York Newsday, it was called. Okay, and um, it, it was really a, a dynamic uh, newspaper, and they had maybe three different reporters writing about restaurants in Queens and Brooklyn, and and you know different little corners of, of Manhattan. Oh, I didn't realize and, that. Uh, you know, New York Magazine always had their, their underground gourmet. And, sure. and so now it was some boss could say, you know, we really need to have another column this Oh, year. I see. And, yeah. and everybody said, great idea. Yeah, great. right. So um, by that time, I was in the food section. And I was actually, uh, I don't know if I had, I think I had become the editor of, of the living section by then. And so I was on a committee to decide who should write this column. 
And you're and like, I, I know a guy. I, I proposed myself. And right. I was almost like joking. Right. And they, right. Were, they all said, oh, yeah, why not? Um, and, you know, in a sense, it's, it's kind of a cheap way of doing things. You know, you've got somebody on staff. You don't have to pay them. They paid me a little bit extra money to do this. And, and so I started writing $25 and under. And I guess it was the end of 91 or something like that. So you entered in the world of food criticism. And, you know, with it, seemingly a lot of responsibility. I mean, sure, it's important to get the news right. But food criticism in New York, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know what it was like back then, but in a way you can kind of make or break someone's career that doesn't work for the paper. You can go and say, I love this place, and it becomes a sensation. Or you can say, it wasn't for me, and you know, it closes a few months later. And you know, when I think of who was the first person to review Mario Batali for the Times, you were. And he's gone on to great acclaim. Um, does that sense of responsibility or just power ever sink in where you're like, wow, what if I'd said that, you know, pasta wasn't that great? Where would that guy be now? Well, um, I understand what you're saying. And I, I never quite looked at it that way because, um, I, I was after, uh, I, I, I went at the job with a sense of, of discovery. I mean, uh-huh. you know, the restaurant critic or the theater critic is always thought of as the guy that makes and, and breaks uh, something. And, and there's a certain place for that when you're dealing with, um, you know, very well-established restaurants or, or new plays that are charging lots of money. And they, um, you know, they, they need to be uh, criticized for better or worse. But uh, I was in a position where I was looking for restaurants that, that nobody had ever heard of. So these were supposed to be positive reviews because if you were writing about it, you liked it. Well, the idea was that why why criticize a place that, that nobody no had ever, ever heard of? Right. What's the what's the consumer service right, in right. that? Because ultimately, that's that's who you're writing for. Sure. And um, you know, it, it, it's a little bit selfish to to use a you know if you found a an awful Ecuadorian restaurant in in Queens, sure. you know, just the worst guinea pig ever. Um, you know, there, there's you could you would it would be selfish because you could get off good lines, um, and and that would just but but right. You know, that's, there, there's no point. There's no point. In, in You're that. not really serving. So you know, the, I did occasionally on the rare you know rarely write a, a bad review, but there was a good reason for it. Um, I I did think of of myself as sharing uh, pleasures, you know, as kind of uh, going out and, and finding places that people might not otherwise know about, but they would really enjoy if they did know uh, about them. So, I mean, has that carried over to the wine side? Because it seems to me like it has. It seems to me like there was a fairly well-defined critical uh, roadmap of what were the great wines, and that that roadmap has come under... Um, I wouldn't say so much scrutiny as people looking more at the fringes of the map in, say, the last eight years. And I feel like that happens to coincide with your time as the wine critic uh, for the Times. And I wonder if you feel like um, you're still um, looking, you know, 24, 25 and under was such value focused. Are you still looking for that value and new discoveries? Is that a, a major part of what you're doing or is it something else? I, w- I would say that's part of it, but um, 
but by no means uh, all of it, and certainly not in the the, the totality that it, it was with 25 and under. I'm not really bound uh, by a price, but I mean, one of the, the really sad facts of, of our wine world today is that the, the benchmark wines of history, the great wines that, that defined, you know, how um, meaningful and, and contemplative uh, wine could be are basically uh, priced out of, of most people's lives. You know, we, in general, we're not going to be able to afford first growth Bordeaux or Grand Cru Burgundy and, and, and those sorts of wines. Do you feel like um, there's a cultural divide in the haves and the have-nots in that moment? Do you feel like um, there's... I, I wouldn't put it that way. It's it's not so much a cultural divide as it is a a, uh, a divide of intention. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one of the reasons you you have that um, that price uh, gap is uh, is is the fact that wine has become a a symbol of status in mm-hmm. a way it, it never was before. Um, you also have a a uh, at, at least with some wines you have a fairly limited supply and you have a a uh, a wine market that's grown exponentially. Um, so, you know, to answer your, your earlier question, um, that, that's a good reason to look, uh, beyond those wines, but there, but there's more to it than simply the search. There's the, the availability. And if you look back, uh, when I started really, uh, focusing on wines in the mid eighties, none of these wines were available. Right. Um, you know, you you basically your your world was not so much different from the way it was at, at you know the turn of of the twentieth century. If you look back in, in, at historical books, you see a lot about Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne, and then a little about uh, Hock or mm-hmm, something sure. like that. You know, German Riesling, uh, some Sherry and, and Madeira and Port, and and that's pretty much it. Uh, maybe a, a, an occasional mention of a, of a, a cote roti or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way it was really in the 80s. You had, you know, if you, sur- if you wanted to be exotic, you would uh, uh, experiment with Chateauneuf-du-Pape or, uh-huh. uh, you know, we had Beaujolais Nouveau and, and things like that. But then, you know, then there was a lot of, of uh, what we used to call jug wine from, from all over and um you know we the the world the globe the global market didn't have access to the to the vast majority of of wine genres that remain local and it wasn't until like the last uh, 15 years of the 20th century and the you know the last 25 years really that um Another generation of importers started following in the the footsteps of Kermit Lynch and and uh, people like that, and discovering all of these uh, uh, wonderful wines that really had never gone more than a hundred miles from their source. So I know there must be many, but what are some of the real standouts amongst those? Um, what are some of the things you've written about that you've really just happy to have found uh, that are now available that may not have been available, say, 30 years ago in America? Well, um, you know, 30 years ago, you never saw, 
probably in France, you never saw wines from the Jura outside of the region. Sure. Um, and now they're, they're all over the country. And in, in, in fact, there are even cult Jura wines now. And that's uh, astounding. Um, you know, really good uh, Cru Beaujolais, uh, wines of, uh, of the Loire Valley, uh, uh, you know, all of the... All, any anything outside of Bordeaux and, and Burgundy, you if you look in the um, you know historical advertising of Sherry Lehman, for example, they were all called country wines, and, sure. and you don't have to look far because Sherry Lehman still does it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, but it, uh, but you know go beyond France. Uh, you know, look at Spain. France was the first country where you started seeing uh, different uh, obscure wines coming to the world's attention, and then. Uh, uh, in Italy, uh, you saw it all over, but it's happening right now in in Spain with uh, you know places like Priorat first, and then uh, uh, Bierzo and Rueda and and Ribera Sacra, and and uh, you know it's it's just fascinating to see these these sort of uh, very local wine cultures suddenly coming to terms with with uh, uh, a global market. And I remember actually uh, visiting Ribera Sacra about three or four years ago. And, and, you know, if you talk to guys in their 50s, they were astounded that that somebody in San Francisco or Tokyo was actually drinking their wine. They just were used to uh, selling it up the river to the the nearest city there. I remember Rosenthal said that one of his big kind of selling points as an importer was the the fact that he had a New York address that – you know, they they were going to receive a check, and they were going to deliver their wines to a New York City address for these growers in these small little towns of Europe. They'd never been to New York. They'd heard about this legendary place, and here's this guy that was going to provide them access, you know, to this metropolitan scene. Just the address was a big deal. Yeah, you know, it's it's a fascinating thing because. Um, you know, it's easy to frame it in in terms of uh, you know somebody starting to look for for fringe wines, but there's a huge you know confluence of events that that permits their uh, availability. Whether it's uh, you know in, increased uh, disposable income at the end of the century, uh, a transportation revolution, so that you can travel by jet anywhere in a few hours, uh, communications, you know. You see, we, I mean, people in, in the U.S. never used to travel. Then they, they started to see uh, Julia Child on television and, and uh, you know, see tra- travel shows in, from Europe. And, and they, had, they had enough money to afford a plane ticket and they could go and, and, uh, and taste different food. So, you know, uh, all of these uh, things, economics, communications, transportation, and, and uh, 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 the availability and discovery of these wines all happen together, uh, the growing market for, for such wines. Do you feel like the rising prices have also allowed for some of the uh, those local, say, country wines to be imported because they could also rise in price a bit? Well, I, I actually made the case that um, you know if if people could just uh, satisfy their their thirst with you know good Burgundy and, and Bordeaux or, or 
whatever, there wouldn't be so many demand, so much demand right. for for these other uh, there sorts of wines. There might not even be a place for Cru Beaujolais if you know Muzani were fifteen dollars. Right. Exactly. So. You know, there's definitely it, it's created I mean, at the American table, past yes. the local. I mean, it's created a a, a market for, um, you know, Chinon where maybe it didn't uh, exist before, or, or uh, you know, people are willing to to try red wines from Mount Etna or or the rest of Sicily where they might never have gone before if they could, uh, you know splurge on on grand cru burgundy or or even even village burgundy so you mentioned frank Pryle. are there other writers that have influenced uh your entry into wine that you really respect that you might recommend other people read in addition to your own writing um well you know you could you couldn't do better than than kind of read through the collected works of hugh johnson in my opinion um He's done just uh, uh, such a beautiful job of, of capturing what's uh, what's beautiful to me about wine and presenting it in a in a context that doesn't treat wine as some sort of uh, clinical con- consumer object that can be uh, analyzed and and uh, captured in a moment. Um, strangely, in in in. American uh, wine literature, it seems as if the, the, the most interesting writers happen to be importers as well. Uh, you know, Kermit Lynch's uh, book is seminal, uh, Adventures on the Wine Route. He, he wrote that um, more than 20 years ago now. And but it still seems fresh. It, it's reading. must reading for, you know, um, for, for learning really how how to think about wine not only how to think about wine but where it comes from um you know a lot of the the most popular wine writing in this country that uh you know deals with scores and tasting notes uh really sort of cuts wine off from from its source and you know you can you can do that for a lot for the great mass of wine, its source is really not that important. It's essentially a factory. But there are uh, wonderful wines. The, the best wines in the world come from a place and are made uh, uh, by a people and are the product of a culture. And it's important to to look back and and uh, explore that culture and so you can better understand what you are drinking rather than thinking of it in terms of uh, – you know, aromas of, of, of cherries and berries. Mm-hmm. So less less of a beverage and more of an entree into a whole world, in a way. Well, I you know, for me, that's what uh, makes wine so fascinating. I mean, yes, it's, it's delicious, and, um, you know, it's a pleasure to drink, and that's, uh, that's number one. And, you know, there's no, nobody is obliged to ever go beyond that. Mm-hmm. But if you are curious about wine, and it and it does kind of set your imagination on on fire, that's that's when you go back and try to figure out who are who are these people? You know how how did they decide to to plant grapes there? What does it say about the you know uh, their history and the the generations who were were making that wine? Do you feel like sometimes you see a uh, a culture or a place's palate reflected in the wine they chose to make? Um, 
Well, I, uh, I'm not sure that you see a, a palette reflected so much because even when you're in uh, you know, a single place, you can have many different styles of, of wine. Um, and, and uh, you know, they, they, they reflect uh, personality. I guess personality is the term I would use rather than uh, palette. But they also re reflect uh, history. And, and one of my uh, favorite moments, I, once, I went to a, a, a dinner where we had the rare opportunity to, to drink a lot of old, great Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Sounds like a good evening. It, it was a great evening, and one of the wines was a a 1939 um, Montrachet. Oh, okay. And, and Montrachet, of course, is is you know the the most exalted white Burgundy, and uh, you know the wine was was wonderful. I mean, it was unbelievably fresh, but it was also it almost had these this like honeyed quality to it and and oh, oh, like it was overripe or or something and there was just a you know a mixture of over overripe flavors and also very um kind of a fresh and underripe flavor mm -hmm. i mean it was just a, like a strange and wonderful blend of, of of flavors and then you you know you go back to uh 1939 uh this is the eastern uh, area of, of france world war uh Two yeah. has, has just begun. Just begun. Uh, Germany has just attacked Poland. It's harvest. The French army has been mobilized. Uh, who usually harvests all those grapes? The men do, but they're all they're gone to join the army. Uh, the the women and the older people are are left behind, and they've got all their own work to do. Plus, now harvesting the grapes. And so you have a very um, uneven sort of of harvest there and and um you know i didn't really think about this beforehand but you know that sort of explained the 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 strangeness of of this wine why you and, might have really ripe grapes and really underripe grapes put together in the same wine. yeah and i mean there might be other reasons for that too um but there was that that element of of history that just uh you know went into that year 1939 in uh in uh the the Cote de Beaune in in Burgundy in eastern France that's what wines tasted like and and they represent that that moment in in time uh in a way that you can't really find in in another uh beverage i don't think what do you see happening uh today in winemaking today we you know, you've talked a little bit how a, a wine has provided a historical view that we can look through. What, what's happening that you see in your travels around different wine regions? Are people um, who are producers also sharing a historical view, or are they um, looking for more accessibility in, in the style of uh, presentation of the wines, whether it be fruit or even marketing? I mean, what do you see that's happening in terms of trends? Well, you know, in 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 part, uh, over the last uh, twenty years, there's been something of a of a cultural war in in wine, and uh, I, I'm not going to attribute it. Uh, uh, I'm not going to say anybody caused that, but um, you know, as wine became a more globalized. Uh, it was important for for wine producers 
naturally to be able to to sell their wines. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, because there have been you know do- certain dominant voices in wine who who approved or or preferred certain styles, there was a great deal of pressure for producers to to make wines in those uh, preferred styles. And sometimes that meant uh, deviating from from tradition, uh, deviating from their own preferences, their own palates. Uh, but you can understand why that uh, was necessary for some people. In, in southern Italy, for example, um, you, you never saw uh, farmers, the people who grew grapes, actually making wine also. They would sell their grapes to co-ops just as, they, as was done for many generations. Um, and then... In the 90s, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of government assistance uh, in the form of loans. If if farmers uh, wanted to make their own wine, and uh, you saw a lot of smaller producers uh, rising up, but they had to sell their wine, and so there was, you know, you can put yourself in in their position. Do I make a wine in a way that I believe will get higher scores and make it easier to sell. And, and uh, that, that's not theoretical, that's demo- demonstrated. Um, or should I make the wine the way I've always made it, the way I like it, and the way people around here have liked it, um, and just take my chances? I mean, you can see that. Uh, and so that was the story for for a long time. And I think that's been changing recently as people um, have learned that that the wine market is not so monochromatic. There's room for a lot of different tastes. There are, are people who prefer the modern wines. There are people who prefer tra- more traditional wines. And you can make the wine that you believe is is the wine that you want to make and and not be assailed for it and still make a living. So you've talked a little bit about strong critical voices and um, a period of time that may have passed where there was fairly few viewpoints in wine criticism in America and that was having a huge impact. One of the things I've noticed about uh, the pieces that you often write is that you invite uh, sommeliers two at a time to come in and uh, help you craft the piece in a way, sit down for a tasting, comment, uh, talk about the wines that they like, the wines that they didn't like in the same grouping that you are. And I'd say that that's fairly rare um, uh, in terms of a rotating crew of professionals uh, who may lend insight in the tasting panel that then later becomes an article. Um, whose idea was that? And what do you take from that when the people come in? Because it's certainly something that um, you know you do frequently. And I, I would like to know how you feel that 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 helps or hurts or what's the difference between that kind of writing and one guy in his den writing his own viewpoint without, you know, bringing in other people? Well, um, I, I actually have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. Um, uh, and I've resolved it though in, in, in my own. So mind. you hate it. Is what you're <laughs> if you could change it and go work in the you den, know, you'd when, do that. When we started uh, the wine panel, and it's now been maybe it's been going on for about eleven years now. Um, I, I didn't think we should have a a panel because I I thought that 
you know, consensus is never good for for critical matters. Uh huh. So if you really want to go out on a limb and talk about something, it's hard to get a lot of other people to come with you to talk about it. Like if you that, really well, want that's to. for sure. That's for sure. And um, you know, and what. Wh- if you have something that you want to say and other people don't agree with you, you know what? How how are you bound? It, it took a little while to work out how the wine panel would work, and I was not the original writer. Frank Pyle was still writing mm-hmm. then, um, but uh, eventually I took over, and I decided, you know, um, it's my name on the column, yeah, and I'm going to write what I think, and. I uh, but I also have this opportunity where uh, I can invite people into who who know a lot and in some cases, if not many cases, know more than I do, and uh, there's there's something that I can learn from from them, um, and it's always educational for me to taste uh, in a group like that, uh, but ultimately. Um, you know, my my opinion is is my opinion, and a consensus. And I don't write uh, uh, consensus uh, reports because it just it, it it's just not useful to to readers. I don't right. think it's you have so to you, have a a, a a cert. You have to know um, what you're reading and what that opinion is. And and you know, if you have four people who taste a, a wine. Um, you know they can have very different opinions, but I, I think this is a very important point, Levy, because uh, I think one of the uh, real problems in our American wine culture is that we we treat wine critics as as omniscient authorities. Sure. You know, oh well, so and so said it was great, so therefore it must be great. Yeah. And be, and he doesn't make mistakes, and besides, his nose is insured for a million dollars from Lloyd's of London, right? And um, you know that's that's ridiculous. Uh, the whole idea that people can't make mistakes with wine people people should make mistakes all the time, and and we shouldn't be afraid of of making mistakes. The uh, you know the the point of being a a wine critic or a wine authority is not that somebody can hand you a blind uh, a, a glass of wine blind and that you can identify it. Uh, you know, nine times out of ten, the the point is that you can explain uh, what's beautiful about wine in a way that that people can understand. Uh, that's that's to me uh, the point anyway, and that you can inspire people and steer them in 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 right directions. And so I, I found the 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 wine panel to be very useful and humbling. Um, and ultimately not an, an obstacle in, in trying to express a clear opinion of my own. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see how that inclusive view just by doing it is, is kind of uh, a statement. You know, just by allowing for inclusivity in the process, that's saying something. Whether or not, you know, it, it changes the final. Like, you know, you still have a clear point of view at yeah. the end when you write the piece. But and just the thought that you're inviting other people in. I, I think that, you know... A lot of people, though, misinterpret it. Uh, Jay McInerney was just telling me the other day. He said, "You know, you should really get rid of that panel. I mean, uh-huh. nobody, you know, people care what you think, and and you know, not what other people think." And um, 
I mean, I understand I his point, and I Caesar too. <laughs> but I think if he, if you know, if you if you read closely, he would see that it is my opinion, and it's not. I'm not saying, well, you know, I like the wine, but Mr. Dalton, you know, occasionally I will. If somebody makes a, a, a salient point, I want I want to include that, uh-huh. um, even if I don't agree with it. But you know, because it, it illustrates the fact that that. Uh, opinion is not ironclad, and it's not uh, you know it's not it's not monochromatic. There's a lot of of different ways of looking at wine. How do you approach such a big topic in a limited word count? I mean, sometimes I feel like the world of wine is so big. When you approach it uh, in a way that you can only take a glimpse, um, what's important to you to include in that article, and what maybe isn't so important? Well, you know, as a writer, it's frustrating to have to, you know, edit yourself and not include things that you think are, are important or, you know, or funny or, or uh, meaningful in one way or another. But, um, you know, I also keep in mind that I'm writing for a, a, a general audience and, um, you know, it's a different readership than, say, the, the wine spectator or, or the wine advocate. It's people who... Uh, you know, you might be interested primarily in in, in government or or, uh-huh. or opera. Or there's a lot. Of people have a lot of reasons for for reading the Times. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I I realize that I'm I'm trying to appeal to a lot of of different people. Uh, some are are you know already very knowledgeable about wine, and you know 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 far more than I do. Other people are are novices or just curious. And so I, I try to write in a way, not always in the same column, that will appeal to this this spectrum of of people. And one of the things is that, you know, you have to you have to keep it fairly succinct. You can't you you can't go on and on. And you know, anybody who is trying, you know, sometimes at the times we do have a tendency to 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 spin it, spin on and on uh, about stories that we think are important. Um, so if I think something really is important, I, I can ask for more space and more often than not, I'm going to get it. But if I'm, you know, tasting, uh, 20 Valpolicellas, I, I have to, you know, just say to myself, you know, I can do this in a thousand words and get in everything I need to say to, for most people. And no, I'm not going to be able to talk about the soil composition in, in this plot versus the next one. But, you know, if people are really curious, there, there are reference books for that. I feel like a lot of times you make an effort to connect it to people's everyday lives, like this abstract idea of of sitting through and tasting 20 wines, you, or as it might be beers. I remember you said, you know, what would be nicer than having one of these beers while watching a baseball game? But, you know, that wasn't necessarily a given until you put it together. Like you seem to make the connection between what this uh, thing in the bottle could do in your life and it seems like someone who lives with wine a little bit lives with beer a little bit and how you like to enjoy them and that kind of comes through which wasn't always the focus i think i mean may have been if you look back to early english writing where people are like these are the wines we had with dinner in in like a wine society uh booklet but i think in the say in the 80s or 90s people often looked at the beverages by themselves and to say um, this is 
a wine with you know certain fruit characteristics of certain point score and it would go well with baseball that's not something that people did a lot um, but you seem to want to make uh, a connection for people in that way where you say this is this is better with a night game you know well you know it's uh it goes back to what uh i was saying about hugh johnson yeah. before um it, wine or beer for that matter it's not a um you know, it's not a laboratory object, even though we think of it that way too often. We try to, you know, cut off all distractions. And, and you know, I, I'm not a big fan, fan of blind tasting either, because uh, I think it's, it, it's a little bit infantile to think that uh, critics would be so influenced if they knew who the producer was that they couldn't, you know, uh, they couldn't have an honest opinion about that. And, um, you know, I, I would like to, to place wine in, in the context of people's lives because that's how most people are going to consume it. And, and that's how it's uh, meant to be in, enjoyed. It's meant to be uh, uh, opened at a, at, a, at a dinner table with your family or your friends uh, or even, you know, by yourself. If on those rare occasions, I'm, I'm not one who who uh, believes that you can't have wine by yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's you know that's that's where it is. It's, it's part of a tableau. It's not a uh, you know it doesn't live in a petri dish. See, so you talked a little bit about reaching a general audience. If someone didn't know a lot about wine, didn't have a lot of familiarity with it, wanted to get more involved, had made the step to go purchase a couple bottles. How should they approach it? Um, say they don't know already some of the contextual things that, that you might know or uh, someone who's uh, spent a lot of time professionally with wine. When they're starting to open these bottles, what should they be thinking about? How should they be placing them in their meal if they just don't know already? Well, um, you know, part of the, the wonderful thing about wine is the uh, discoveries that, that we make. And uh, I'm a... a I believe that um, you know we turn to uh, education far too soon, um, and and in fact, I've I have a book coming out in oh, you do? in the fall called How to Love Wine. Oh, okay. And the basic idea is that in in our country we've we've got it backwards. We we've sort of led people to believe that in order to uh, drink wine, they need to become connoisseurs first. You have to learn everything about it before you can appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's backwards. The most important thing is to develop an emotional connection with wine, to fall in love with it, really. And then if you're curious about it, find out, uh, because then you have a context for for. Uh, using all the the knowledge uh, that you'll you'll glean, it's so the first so the first easier to do it that way. The first thing you want to do is really find out if you if you like wine you like or wine. not, yeah, or not. And the most I I always think the most important thing you can do is find a good wine shop and and put yourself in the hands of a of a sympathetic uh, uh, employee there and. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to learn about wine, the first thing to do is not to to buy a book or take a class. It's to buy a, a mixed case of of wine. Sure. And you have to do a little 
work now. You have to just sort of uh, uh, keep track of, of which wines you're, you're opening and, and uh, what you're how how they how you feel about it when you're when you're drinking them if you're if you really want to learn about wine you open a bottle with dinner and and don't worry so much in advance about what goes with what um see for yourself how you feel about it um and uh you know just taste different wines in different uh circumstances with different with different foods and, and keep track of it and then uh, go back to your wine shop and, and talk to your, your person there and say, I, I like this wine. I didn't like this wine. Put together another case for me and, and by all means give a price limit because, you know, you know how wine shops are. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, this is how you, you sort of develop your own sense of, of what you like and, and what you don't like. And also, you develop a, a, a curiosity uh, about wine or not. That's fine, too. Wine is something that can easily be in, enjoyed by, by people and has been enjoyed by people for most of its history w without thinking about it. There's, there's no obligation to ever give any thought to wine beyond whether you like it or not. I mean, it doesn't make you a better person. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I would just hope it doesn't make me a worse person. So what are, what are some of the ways that your own palate, your own desires about wine, uh, where you find yourself leaning may have changed in the time that you've been writing professionally? Have you noticed that at all, that maybe what originally interested you interests you less now? And Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. Um, I, I've been drinking wine for so long and um, – you know, there's a certain uh, arc of, of discovery that that uh, was true for me, and I and has been true for an, a lot of other people, where you you know you you when you first get into wine, it's very bold flavors that you like, lush flavors, um, big fruity flavors. There, it's easier to understand it at at first, um, and. Um, you know, for for me, it, I have to back up a second there, sure. because um, you know when I started learning about wine in in the uh, early '80s, it was still it was about learning. You learned about wine by learning about Bordeaux. Sure, that was the the number one uh, area for serious wine people. There was a lot of it around. It was easily understood. The there was a clear hierarchy of of wines. Um, it was not you know, a bunch of tiny producers in a mangled uh, 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 world of terroir like like Burgundy. Um, so you started in 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 Bordeaux, and then uh, you know, for me, that coincided with sort of the rise of California uh, wines in the in the later '80s, and those were bolder, fruitier uh, flavors. And there was a lot of excitement that met that. Introduction, I think. Yeah, you know, Zinfandels. And, sure. And uh, um, I, I never had the same experience with white wine. I, I kind of went from, you know, learning about uh, 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 Maconnais wine and then Riesling and, and Muscadets. And I, I never really got into California uh, Chardonnay. I, I very much loved German Rieslings <laughs> from an early age. But, um, you know, I, I found myself then uh, – uh, tracking back into into 
less fruity wines and, and wines that sort of uh, maybe their 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 signature flavors had nothing to do with fruit at all. Um, you know, earthy wines or or mineral wines or bizarre flavors. Uh, you know, uh, Barolo. I mean, Rotar. I mean, that's a it's such a weird uh, descriptor, and and yet, I mean, that's what it it kind of smells like. Um, and I found myself uh, looking for for uh, leaner wines um, at, at a time when wines seemed to be getting less structured. I wanted more structure in, in wines, more acidity. Uh, I like tannins in, in in red wines. And then I also found myself. I always, I never preferred. Uh, red wines to white wines or vice versa. I always liked both of them. Um, and for a while, I found myself getting seriously interested in, in white wines and drinking a lot more of them because that's how I was cooking at home. Bubbles, um, you know, uh, uh, for the last uh, uh, four or five years, uh, sherry, um, you know, there's all, all, but there's so many different things in, in wine, and I find myself uh, I, I'm always on the verge of a of a new discovery and something that, uh, uh, you know, will take me someplace that I, I never have been before. I had a, a great uh, uh, California Pinot Noir the other night, and I was just like, I was just experimenting because I I was asked to write a piece on wine with pizza. Oh, okay, and uh, you know. Man, here was a, a California Pinot Noir from the uh, foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. I mean, not known as Pinot Noir sure. country, and yeah. just uh, you know, lean and, and acidic, and it was actually seven years old already, and it was delicious. Huh. And uh, you know, it's, it's there's always something something new, um, but you know, I I've always in in food and wine, I've I feel as if I've had I have a, a fairly wide range of tastes. I'm not I don't feel that I'm narrow about things, even though I, I definitely have preferences. Well I, I think you certainly have a wide uh taste range when it comes to wine. You also seem to be a, a pretty broad reader in terms of uh knowing what's out there and uh the writing that other people are doing as well as uh the wines that people are making. You're you're aware and kind of hep to the game. What do you see as the future of wine writing or food writing? Um now that things have changed a little bit and gotten away from print media or maybe there'll be a return to print media or maybe print media will uh, be behind some of the digital uh, editions like we've seen with the Times. What's your viewpoint on where things may be headed if someone is writing about wine or what we might expect to see if you're reading about wine? Well, um, you know, I, I will give you uh, something of a, of a hopeful response because um, I think the you know what? What we read about wine is so important uh, to forming how we think about wine. And what I really want to see less of uh, is the the whole um, tasting note mode of of discussing wine. And and I would love to see it uh, thought of, written about it in a in a much wider context. Um, and I think that you know the fact that um, you know, anybody can write about wine now on the in the internet, and that's a, a largely a, a great thing. I, I don't really worry about uh, 
that much about misinformation out there or, or uh, you know, people um, being ill-served by the, the fact that anybody can, can offer their opinion because the Internet is very Darwinian and, and – yeah. Self-correcting. You know, and self-correcting. And, and if you don't have skills or, or if you don't have integrity or there's something that you're – if you're not coming up with interesting to say, things to say, you're not going to build an audience. But uh, there are people out there who I think are, are just are, are writing well about wine and taking it uh, away – Taking it outside of the the tasting room and and restoring some sense of of context and history to the way they uh, approach wine, and you're seeing a wider wider diversity of a, of opinion and and way of thinking about wine uh, now. So I I'm I'm very optimistic really from uh, from what I read. So here you've been a professional food reviewer in terms of restaurants in the New York scene uh, several times in your career. What has happened at the restaurant level in terms of wine lists uh, that you've noticed? You, you've met a lot of these sommeliers. You've gone to a lot of restaurants both uh, on your personal time and, and professionally. Um, what's been the difference between, say, you know, 1989 and 2012? Oh, it's... The world, I mean, the world has changed so much in in that time. And, uh, you know, you're looking back in 1989, this is a time when, you know, every, if you mentioned the word sommelier, you still had to sort of qualify it by, you know, we're not talking about the snooty French guy with the, uh, the, the uh, test of vin hanging from his vest or something like that. Um, you know, you, you, you. There was still the image. The rare sommelier back then was was an intimidating figure, and nowadays, um, and and also there were very few restaurants with really interesting wine lists back then. Um, now in in New York, uh, there's such a, a thriving community uh, of passionate uh, sommeliers, um, star sommeliers. Fascinating wine list, even at, at the smallest restaurant. It's a real exception now when I see one of those old school wine lists put together by a mass market distributor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm shocked when I see something like that because there, there are so many smart and curious and, and talented uh, people around now. Um, and I, I will just qualify that also a little bit by saying that I think there's uh, maybe sometimes an absence of humility among sommeliers okay. that I, I notice, and you know, there's people are are hungry and, and passionate to to learn, but they should never stop learning themselves and always be aware of of what they need to to know, um, and I think that there's a uh, uh, you know there. There's a desire to uh, to get ahead, to to be in charge of, of wine programs, to you know to be a, a, a master sommelier or or whatever, and and uh, and sometimes you know the community gets a little bit ahead of it of itself in in just in its desire not not only to achieve but to be recognized for one's uh, achievements. 
So um, there, just a, a little uh, paternal cautionary note uh, alongside the, 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 the note that it, it's just, it's fantastic. And you see, just to, to branch out, you see the same thing in, in wine shops. I mean, 25 years ago, there were maybe like three or four wine shops in New York where you could actually get anything interesting. Now, all over this city, um, you know, in the little uh, fringe neighborhoods, uh, uh, you have the most, you have great little shops run by people who are passionate to, to know all about wine and, and are stocking wines with, with wines, stocking their shop with wines that they love and, and want to turn people on to rather than just uh, high scoring wines. It's a great thing. Do you feel like the move away from points has allowed people to assert their own viewpoint and kind of more niche establishments? Well, um, I don't want to uh, um, exaggerate. I think, you know, the, the point system is still the dominant mode for selling wines in, in our country. And, and, you know, to a certain extent here in, in New York City, um, we operate in, in a little bit of our of our own world where we're not bound. We've escaped from from that system, and we've sure. got all kinds of wonderful, you know, small importers and, and distributors who can bring us all sorts of wines and and a, and a market for those wines. But um, yeah, I think it's a great thing when when people can escape escape from a centralized uh, system of of wine approval and. Um, and 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 do their own thing. I mean, it's the same thing for a restaurant chef. If you know, if you take a focus group and and decide that your menu must have uh, a salmon dish and a steak dish and a pasta dish and a and a and a chicken breast and and whatever, you're, it's a recipe for for you know mass slumber. Um, it's so much more interesting when when a chef has their own vision and can make and can sell it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's true with sommeliers and, and uh, wine shops. And, and one last point about uh, sommeliers, they are uh, in, a, in a way that they never were before. I think they're, they have a tremendous opportunity to influence uh, the wines that, that people are drinking. And you have to, you have to use that influence well by partly gauging the the potential of of your clients or your your diners you know what they can tolerate but it's also i mean sommeliers have have turned people on to so many different wines and and are just you know crucial uh conduits for for taking uh uh, little known wines and giving them more exposure to people for explaining them so, Eric, we live in a, in New York, and it's as you mentioned, there's a lot of small importers bringing a, a wide range of products uh, to the market. It, but what what's the story for someone maybe in a less populous area, maybe Middle America, maybe away from the coast, uh, where they're are they going to see big changes? Have they seen big changes? Is it going to uh, move more in the direction that we've seen, like with food, where some of the kind of foraging trends and uh, increased concern with um, quality of ingredients on the dish has made its way all the way into every corner of American restaurants um, and, you know, in a way that we might credit with Alice Waters or with others. Um, what's going to happen with wine? Is it going to make it all the way into the interior or are we just going to see this, you know, in San Francisco, New York and Chicago? Um 
Well, I think wine has already made it into the interior. And, and one thing I would say is that uh, wine tends to lag behind food, I would say, by about 10 years or so. Um, you know, it became very important. Uh, uh, the organic business became very important in food well before it, it did in wine, uh, where the, the food was uh, coming from. Um, and, you know, 10 years later, it started to become uh, important in wine. Uh, you know, organic viticulture, uh, biodynamics is actually something that, that you know, has, wine has led the way in. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's only recently that um, people started to think of uh, how the grapes were, were grown. Uh, think of, of wine as an agricultural product uh, primarily and to uh, um, demand uh, of their wine what they were already demanding of, of their food. Um, and of course, that comes with its own danger as, uh, you know, or the, the uh, idea of, of organics has been something co-opted, somewhat co-opted by big agricultural companies. It's also happening in wine where you you redefine what it means uh, to be organic so that you make it easier for for companies that have enough money to to finance big lobbying campaigns and, and things like that but um, uh, yeah the fact that um, uh, the internet now and and hopefully uh, changing uh, federal laws about interstate wine commerce uh, have made uh, uh, it easier to to uh, for anybody to access to have access to to great and unusual wines. A, a company like uh, Garagiste, uh, for example, you order you can order wines that you might once only have been able to find in a you know a, a certain Manhattan shop or something. Now you can get them sent anywhere in the the country. Um, so I think there's a. Uh, 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 definite uh there's definitely going to be a a catch up and i you know i see it around the country first come comes the interest in food and the interest in in restaurants and you have a a an increase in interesting restaurants and because uh now to be interested in food means that you're going to be interested in wine those restaurants will draw a a supply of people who who are also interested in wine and want to to turn people onto uh, things, and and so wine will follow food. Yes, thanks, Eric. I look forward to reading your articles every week, and I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and tell us a little bit about them. Thank thanks, you. Eric. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. 
and thank you for listening.